Where's my wife? Don't worry. We gave her a nice honeymoon. Maybe you can hum the theme song. Won't hold it against you if you get parts wrong. While the memory's not too strong, there's a piece of you from a time long gone. So while these fuzzy warm feelings remain, question we ask is still the same. Is it a treasure or just plain lame? Is this still good? Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Still Good? I'm Gavin Murray, and with me, I have a co-host whose name might just possibly be. I thought you were going to ramp up more. Aren't you? No, aren't no, you I'm good. For me? That's, that's, you don't deserve any more than that. Hi, I'm Sage. <laughs> and today, Sage and I are joined by... Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Uh, is this still good? Uh, this is Sean Lynch. <laughs> Welcome, Sean. What did you bring for us to talk about today? I brought... The 15th and 16th entries in the James Bond series, uh, The Living Daylights and License to Kill, starring a severely underappreciated Bond actor, Mr. Timothy Dalton. I couldn't have possibly heard that right. Are you telling me there's a series that has 16 movies with the same actor playing the same character? Oh, no, no, no. There there are many, uh, officially six actors playing the role. Sean Connery. (laughs) <laughs> Everyone's favorite, uh, well, George, George Lazenby, um, Australian model who bullshitted his way into the part. Uh, Roger Moore, the kind of prankster of the bunch. Uh, Mr. Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and uh, our current Bond, Daniel Craig. And who unofficially has played Bond? Um, have you played oh, Bond? <laughs> uh. There, I don't know. It's it's a mess when you get outside <laughs> the the Eon official twenty five films. Uh, it, it's it's like there's the sixties Casino Royale that has like a bunch of different people playing Bond, and you know Sean Connery did an unofficial one in the eighties called Never Say Never Again. It's yeah. So when I talk about Bond, I'm just talking about these official uh ones from eon We're putting some sort of scope in this discussion <laughs> yeah. sounds wise yeah yeah you gotta narrow it down to the 25 somewhere. official bonds <laughs> yeah we're only gonna uh, talk about mind... 25 movies and six <laughs> yeah. actors you saw all 25 before this right <laughs> yeah it was well in my mind there's like two and a half more because you've got the casino royale tv movie mm-hmm, you've got yeah. a james bond spoof movie where the character's still called james bond and not like austin powers or something if you mm-hmm. want to broaden the scope there's like 60 james bond movies yeah, we got oh, our yeah. in like Flint. I I was <laughs> lied to then because I only prepared for two movies and one actor. <laughs> but no, 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 that's your problem. Not ambitious enough. <laughs> oh God, You're making me look really unprofessional. Um, well, Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you, and how did you become who you are today? Yeah, who's this guy? I don't know this yeah, guy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm a screenwriter and director. Um, I've gotten to collaborate with Gavin on a couple projects. Uh, most recently, Red Snow. It's a horror film that Gavin shot, uh, did a great job, and is currently on post, so we'll we'll, uh, (laughs) keep you updated on that. But yeah, I grew up a big film buff, mostly genre movies, mostly action, horror, sci-fi, and like any fan of action movies, I definitely got into the James Bond movies at a pretty early age. We'd, you know, rent them on VHS, later on DVD, and... um, I guess it was, yeah, it was definitely during the time of Pierce Brosnan being Bond, so 
I was definitely at first mostly absorbing those and the really early mm-hmm. ones, like Sean Connery's first few ones. Uh, you know, just jumping around, seeing them out of order, later getting into the books. And, you know, when you're doing that, you kind of pick up on sort of the trappings, you know, oh, this, you know, Q is more of a factor here. Uh, you sort of see the different actors over time. And, you know, I what I always found was the ones that I would go back to the most were these two, The Living Daylights and License to Kill, because I always felt like Dalton was just bringing something a little different to the role, something kind of fresh. <laughs> and especially coming off the Roger Moore years, he did seven movies. His That's were so very movies. spoofy, kind of very over the top. Still fun, you know, I like Roger Moore. Just like I like Adam West as Batman, I think that that's probably the closest comparison. But I felt like, yeah, I felt like Dalton was the first one to kind of go back to the source material, kind of try and humanize him a little bit, kind of get it a little more grounded. Yeah, I I was really into, particularly *License to Kill*, his second. uh, But both of these movies were were uh, I, I held in pretty high esteem. So. In the Pierce Brosnan era, were you watching any of these films in theaters? Or was this mostly like off of the VHSs off the shelf? Uh, I, I know. I definitely cool. saw some of the Brosnans in theaters. Um, I remember seeing World Is Not Enough as third and Die Another Day, which is probably the worst Bond movie of the bunch. Mm. I think I've seen all of them in theaters since World Is Not Enough. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That sounds right. I think I'm in the, in the same boat with mm. that. I've never seen a Pierce Brosnan Bond um, really? Yeah. What? But that's that's not what we're here to talk about. Well, <laughs> obviously we'll probably not. touch on the other Bond actors. Because I feel yeah. like uh, the, the context is always important with Bond. Uh, particularly, right, so, like, the kinds of movies that came before these two. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm definitely here to get an education in Bond. Because I am, you know, I have yet to yet to go, to go to this altar nearly as much as most of my peers. And they've always seemed like a series that I would love. I just haven't been baptized it's yet. overwhelming i mean there's 25 movies <laughs> in the official canon yeah and which one of these is is your bond oh dalton 100 percent. well that's yes yeah, so i'll talk about uh uh in this podcast <laughs> um i feel like most people would either say connery he's kind of the iconoclast he, he planted mm-hmm. the flag first that's i totally get it or they'd say craig who's, you know, kind of rightly celebrated for bringing back the kind of grittiness. But I sort of would argue that Craig is kind of just doing the Dalton thing today and, like, is it's kind of being received better and there's, like, more of a an atmosphere for this. Whereas in the late 80s, you know, I guess everyone was just, like, too busy doing blow and voting for Ronald Reagan <laughs> to, like, really get into it. Like, it it was does just... seem how you get licensed to kill. <laughs> People wanted more Roger Moore, basically. So he was not yeah. well received at the time. But I, I sort of sense that that's shifting today. So I feel like most people of of our age group and generation probably have Pierce Brosnan as our Bond, because that's that was literally who was Bond when I was a kid. And, yeah. you know, that first movie's pretty great. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. You can have long conversations about the qualities of the other one. There's always something there. But uh, everything that I thought Bond was supposed to be... Uh, is really there in in Brosnan. I can even, like, I can see the femme fatales wanting to sleep with Pierce Brosnan, Mm -hmm. which is not something I can really get behind for most of the Bonds. Yeah, totally. Uh, Sean Connery's chest hair doesn't do it for you? I don't understand how Sean Connery was ever a sex symbol. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) 
Fun fact, uh, Sean Connery wears a hairpiece in all of his performances as Bond. <laughs> Every single fun. one. <laughs> you know, just to just to defend his sexiness, I believe he was Mr. Universe more than once. I could wow. be totally wrong, but... Hey, I'm not arguing. He's a sexy man. I'm not going to argue <laughs> that. Uh, I mean, to be clear, I have an affection for all six of the Bond actors, even Lazenby. But for me, Dalton is is just... It's a personal connection, you know, mm-hmm, like it's mm-hmm. I felt like especially if you were to I, I can only imagine if you watch these in chronological order after like seeing <laughs> Is that essentially not the way you're supposed to. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that that's definitely like a good way to do it. But I find that most people jump around like you tend to like get exposed to whoever your generation's bond is first. Right. 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 Either, whether it, whether it's Brosnan or Craig or whoever. And I feel like that kind of cements your vision of Bond a little bit. But um, uh, I feel like, there I don't know, there really is no wrong answer to who your favorite Bond is, okay? So, so don't come at me. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of, like, because the only other, I think it's juggling between James Bond and Godzilla are, like, the two longest-running film series that I can think of. That, that sounds right. And, yeah and like i i watched a lot more godzilla growing up and the yeah you know the actors in godzilla changed a little bit like less obviously because it's all the costumes but like the sound that godzilla makes and the costume changes quite a bit too and there is like times where godzilla is a hero there's times where he's a villain and so that's kind of my the i'm just trying to uh take what i know about godzilla and transport it as cleanly as i can uh, into talking about Bond. I'm not sure if it's going to work. <laughs> no, I think that's fascinating because, I mean, so James Bond, is, as far as I know, is our longest running like Western cinema franchise. Uh, there's Godzilla, and I th- I think there's actually more Japanese and Chinese uh, film franchises that have like 40, 60 movies and dwarf anything we've done. But the obvious comparison is the MCU. But it's it's actually not as oh, good a comparison as Godzilla because it hasn't been going as long and going through as many changes. Like the MCU will surpass Bonds this whenever movies start coming out again. <laughs> Fascinating, because yeah, yeah, I guess they're doing what like two, three a year. Yeah, yeah, but like I think Endgame was the twenty third or something, which means they're like. Black Widow will be the 25th, so at some points they'll have the exact same amount, and then James Bond will be left in the dust. I think that uh, another interesting thing about the Bond series is, and I think that you've touched on this in the past, Sage, maybe on the Mission Impossible episode, but just how kind of reactionary they are to what's popular at the time, and how that Mm -hmm. kind of becomes an echo chamber a little bit. Like, you could say, oh, you know... Quantum of Solace is chopped up like a Bourne movie. Like, it's clearly like a reaction to the popularity of the Bourne movies. But on the other hand, you could go back to Dr. No in 1962 and be like, oh, this is the beginning of action movies being cut like this, like kind of quick cut. So it's kind of like a cycle of everyone ripping each other off. Yeah. And Bond constantly trying to kind of react to what's kind of in the zeitgeist at the time. And the two we're talking about today... I would say are very reactionary to not only what was going on in the news at the time, like with the Contras, uh, Iran Contras, but also the emergence of movies like Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, like these kind of harder edged action movies that were very popular at the time. License to Kill Mm -hmm. in particular takes actors from Die Hard. They take Michael Kamen, who's the composer of Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Um, like it's it they very much know what they're doing in in trying to kind of capture what's popular at that moment 
And that's also much more than the other Bond movies, at least in my estimation, feels like an American film. They set it in like Miami and Central America. Yeah, I'm not entirely certain where that movie takes place, but it all seems <laughs> nearby. It's uh, the fictional uh, South American country of Isthmus. <laughs> oh, see, I didn't even <laughs> Isthmus catch that. City so Panama is where that's set. I think okay. it was shot mostly yeah. in Mexico and Mexico City. Yeah, it's yeah basically it all Mexicali. shot in Florida yeah. and, and uh, Mexico City. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was very weird going from Living Daylights, which is like a pan-European, really classic Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it does it does feel like a sort of quintessential tale that, like, maybe when you get a new Bond, that is the tor- type of story you should throw them all through. Now, I don't fully know where everything in that movie takes place either, but it's because it's in 1980s Europe yeah. and all those boundary lines are chopped up. They're all real places, but they're not the same places that exist today. Whereas in in uh, License to Kill, it's just, no, we're just going to make things up because you know where they are and we'll get in trouble. <laughs> and I think the big the big thing, uh, even though these movies are just a year apart, um, the big thing that was happening in between them is the end of the Cold War, essentially. And then it's like, you go from <laughs> Living Daylights, which is this super Cold War movie yeah. about like a fake defection and like involving the KGB, very Cold War, to... By 89, it's like, oh, we can't really have Russians be plausible villains anymore. Like, what is in the news? Oh, like, these drug lords who right. are kind of subverting the governments of these South American countries, which I think is so interesting, uh, just just seeing that difference between just two movies. And I think another difference is they'd kind of figured out who Timothy Dalton was and what kind of stories they wanted to tell with him, which were, like, the harder kind of edged you know license to kill is the first pg-13 bond movie and it's a really violent movie for this franchise and kind of paved the way especially for the craig ones i think were they were they r or pg before because they're all pg-13 is a new thing yeah yeah i mean that's part of it too i think it was invented like in the mid 80s i'm not exactly sure just like yeah like the the timothy dalton rating uh, yeah (laughs) for him if i remember correctly I think they blame Spielberg for it more, like Temple of Doom and uh, Gremlins, but I'll, I'm sure Dalton will take that. Yeah, I think Temple of Doom when I think first PG-13 movie, but I don't know if that's technically accurate. I think it might have been PG, but it was so the backlash to just how violent that movie is caused mm-hmm. like that middle rating to come out. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure about that. You know, that is not as violent as License to Kill. <laughs> yeah, License to Kill is pretty graphic. Yeah. Now, but just just for clarification, this was there was already the R rating had existed. Oh, NC seventeen yeah. was that NC seventeen still around at that or around at that time too? Or was that X at the time? They had like X for are... a long time. Um, yeah. At a certain point, it became NC seventeen. But yeah, I, mm-hmm. in fact, um, License to Kill originally did get slapped with an R, which was unheard of for a Bond movie. So they had to trim. Oh, wow. Especially when Milton Crest gets his head blown up, like that, I think that was the moment yeah. where they had to trim back a few frames. There's some, there's some good gruesome bits in that. Like oh, Benicio yeah. del Toro goes through like the, like the claw thing, it's like a coke thresher. Bit. Yeah, yeah, it's such an it's 80s like a beat grinder, but used for industrial drug applications. It's I just, mean, and it's, it's the '80s. We need an industrial device to chew cocaine for us. Right, yeah. and that movie opens up with Felix getting eaten by a shark. Oh yeah, not all the way. They just like let him nibble on him for a little bit, and then put him back in his cabin and uh, attach the note to him that says, 
he disagreed with something that ate him. Which, which is, is right out of the Fleming books. <laughs> which is funny because like there is no book called License to Kill. This is the first yeah. one that was a totally original property. But they oh, wow. did like pick and choose things from uh, like Live and Let Die and some of the short stories to to get some of the grossest stuff in the movie is like right from Fleming, including that. So, Sean, have you, I mean, did you grow up on those books, too? How many of those have you read? Oh, I've read them all. Um, I, I think I got into the books a little bit later, like more high school. Um, the books are interesting because Bond is a little bit more of a cipher. I think that the movies do a better job of kind of giving him a personality. But mm-hmm. what is there, Dalton definitely, like, absorbed because there's this great moment in Living Daylights where kind of after the defection the fake defection that happens at the beginning of the movie has happened and he's driving with saunders who's like chewing him out dalton says oh if they fire me i'll thank them for it which is such a like (laughs) fleming thing where this guy kind of hates his job and doesn't really want to be doing it but he's just that good at it and you would never hear like roger moore or sean connery's bond saying something like that so that i think i would point to that as a moment of like oh dalton's definitely going back to the source material a little bit gavin have you read anything from ian fleming yeah i actually so i i didn't grow up with the movies uh, as much as like you guys did but my grandfather owned the entire collection and i moved into um his old house for high school and found the entire collection of that. I had the entire Wizard of Oz collection. Of I didn't books? read through like, yeah, I didn't no, read the through all wizards. of them. <laughs> yes, I had a collections of all the Wizards of Oz. Yes, um, no, but so I read a few of the books. They weren't super my cup of tea at the time. I felt like they were a little bit for a younger audience, in my opinion. They're very like, you know, back of a magazine feeling. Like it's they feel like pop fiction in like a really fun way, but. I was reading more science fiction at the time and went back to that. But at the time I was also reading um, the Bourne books had just started coming out, I think. So I had read the Bourne Identity and the Bourne Supremacy and I was reading some of the Tom Clancy books. So there was like a period there where I was like, oh, okay, yeah, might as well go back to the source, which is what Ian Fleming felt like to me, even if that's not right in period. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. And Bourne Bourne goes through a similar thing where like the Bourne Identity is more or less based on that first book. But if I remember correctly, it's, the Born Supremacy oh. is about Born trying to like quell a rebellion in China, and that the movies just continue based off of that premise. Well, in the Born Identity, I actually because I really loved that book, and when I went and saw the movie, I was incredibly disappointed because really? it did not. Yeah, it totally changed. They didn't use the 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 villain in the Born Identity is a real person, and he had Wait, just like, died before okay. they went into production, so they felt like they couldn't use him. Oh, like they had like a real historical figure? Yeah. Like it was just like Oliver North or something? <laughs> yeah, they were using this assassin who was, I guess, a real person. And so they basically did away with like the main antagonist in the book who was like super fun. Uh, I mean, awful person who killed a lot of people, but <laughs> fun for a villain. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, you describe most most villains in espionage thrillers. <laughs> Sean, how... how in- does it matter to you at all if a, if a Bond movie is faithful to a book? No, not really, because so few of them are. Weirdly, like, I would say really just the early Connery ones, and honestly, Casino Royale are the only ones that I think of as being particularly faithful to the source material. I mean, the Craig Casino Royale adds a bunch of shit because it's a pretty thin book, but it is <laughs> fairly 
uh, faithful. In Living Daylights is interesting because that short story is really just the scene that opens the movie. I mean, after the cold open where he, Bond basically refuses to shoot a female sniper. And then he says, oh, I bet I scared the living daylights out of her. The end. Like that's the <laughs> they. So I kind of admire Living Daylights for building that's what's probably the most convoluted Bond plot out of just that like really short, thin short story. I think it's more just like what you do with the trappings and yeah. like the decisions that the actor and and the and the team really make that that are most important to me. It is interesting with this series how much credit, and I'm not sure how much. Uh, like, I bet playing Bond right now is pretty financially a good move. Like, I feel like you know. I mean, they managed to get back an actor who didn't want to do it to do two more movies. Right. So yeah, I'm I'm sure that's paying pretty well, and I'm not sure if that's always been the case. Like, I don't know if Sean how what Sean Connery's star power was before he took on the role in the first place. I used in that but... Leprechaun movie, so that's pretty that's pretty important. <laughs> Darby O'Gill, yeah. Darby O'Gill, yeah. the little people. I've been watching that movie or like snippets from that for a music video I'm I'm doing, and it's so much fun to revisit that amazing movie. We should probably do it on the pod at some point. But <laughs> it's the it's the most important reason to have Disney Plus behind Hamilton. <laughs> but I it's interesting that you give so much credit to the actors and like them being able to make these decisions when like some of them like Lazenby and Dalton weren't around for very many movies. And I'm sure like yeah. Connery towards the end, you know, like he could probably throw his weight around a little bit. Although you also mentioned that he did Never Say Never. I'm not sure if that's because he got kicked off bond do you know the story behind that yeah yeah um so connery wasn't that famous when he got the role i think they are looking to get someone bigger initially but they just didn't have the budget for it and around the time of goldfinger connery just blew up and he felt like he wasn't really being properly compensated for like what Mm -hmm. huge blockbusters these movies were um and so he kind of left the he left after you only live twice and then they brought in this other actor Lazenby for one uh mostly due to just you know a combination of like feeling like he wasn't paid enough and also he's a man who likes his private life and suddenly he's being recognized everywhere they managed to bring back Connery for one more official one after Lazenby And I think at that point, Connery did have a lot of control over like what he could do with the role uh, from, in my opinion, for the worse, (laughs) because like towards the end, he just was not giving a fuck. Like he just was talking in his Scottish accent and like it was clear like he (laughs) most of his stipulations were like the number of weeks they could use him like he was definitely over it. So it's more like my control is I want to do less. (laughs) But um, what's interesting about Dalton is um. He, they initially had asked him to to take the role when he was very young, like in the, in the late sixties. And he actually turned it down because he was like, oh, Bond shouldn't be young. He had very strong ideas of what Bond should be. And so when they were finally able to Hmm. get him in the role in the eighties, he kind of said like, I want to, I want to do Bond this way. And they are very much on board with it just because of how silly the movies had gotten. They sort of felt like the pendulum needed to swing back to something a little yeah. more grounded. So who was Dalton at that time? Do, do you Um, you know, he he was mostly known as like sort of a classically trained actor. He'd done like a lot of like BBC miniseries, like he did Jane mm-hmm. Eyre and things like that. Um Okay. So he was uh, you know, I I always sort of think like 
had his career gone a different route, he would have been like Kenneth Branagh or Lawrence Livier is like more someone who's just kind of known wow. for doing the classics. But he, uh, you know, he he took the role of Bond and that kind of just became what he's best known for, like outside of like Hot Fuzz. But uh, right. To, to me, Timothy Dalton is the guy from Hot Fuzz. <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's who he is to me. I'd never seen either of these movies before prepping for this podcast. Yeah, I was so well, happy to see him in that. <laughs> I felt vindicated. So he's, he's on Doom Patrol now, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, oh yeah. So if you want a steady dose of Timothy Dalton. Well, I think this is as good a time as any to like attempt to uh, summarize these two movies very quickly. Okay. Sage, do you want to split the duties? Do you want to do you want to do one and I'll do one? Yeah, can I do License to Kill? Living sure. Daylight is I have almost a, I have impossible. A chance to do License <laughs> to Kill. All right, so. Uh, the Living Daylights. We open on a defection of a Russian, a high-up Russian agent, as he runs away from the opera to join, or not opera. The anyway, the opera, but without singers, whatever that's called. <laughs> um, someone correct me. Come on, I, I don't know what the <laughs> the hell you're talking about. The symphony, that one. You're also going right past the cold open. Oh, I don't know if I remember the cold open. Oh, it's a great little like uh like uh scrimmage war games on an island where someone's oh, infiltrated right. and is actually yeah. killing agents. It's, it's great. So yeah, we we start with a war game and Bond realizes that there's someone there actually killing agents. So he has to chase them and leads to like gripping to the top of a car as it drives off a cliff as he parachutes and the thing explodes. There's so many explosions in this movie, by the way. It's so fucking good. But the main plot of this movie is a Russian defector is escaping with Bond and another agent. A female sniper sets up in a window to shoot at them. And Bond, rather than killing her, shoots the gun out of her or in her hands, causing her to drop it. They escape with the Russian general, who is quickly picked up by Russian agents. And Bond is chewed out for not shooting the sniper, which was his mission. Um, he also like quickly proves his co-agent just irresponsible and bad at his job and takes over complete control over the mission, which he will continue to do throughout the entire movie. We quickly find out that the Russian agent is a not a real defector. He's pretending to defect in order to set up a different Russian general in order to make a shit ton of money in the private sector by buying weapons, I think, from this really kooky... Uh, collector of military weapons bond starts to date the assassin the the female sniper basically showing him around pretending to be uh the escaped russian not real defector's friend finding out that she was his girlfriend he gets pretty sleazy with her uh they make out on top of a ferris wheel for a while and she kind of lets it drop enough for him to realize that the, what the plot is and he convinces her to trust him after she knocks him out with like a a martini that has been dosed so together they are in the russian but like splinter russians um power and they escape again and then he they lay they spring a trap the good Russians take down the bad Russians and everyone is happy ever after. And this was one of those endings too, where it's like him and the girl like right off into the sunset. And I'm like, 
are they going to be together in the next movie or is that not how bond works it really depends <laughs> i would good love job to, leaving uh, out afghanistan yeah <laughs> oh that's right that's they go a, to that's afghanistan basically teams up with the taliban at the end of the movie <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but this, this is and, when uh, Rambo or the American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This and Rambo, Rambo 3 have that uncomfortable 3, yeah. history. <laughs> yeah, because this is, again, like back when the USSR was still together, they were trying to take over Afghanistan. So Afghanistan became America and British allies because they were pro-democracy, I'm assuming. And so we gave them a bunch of weapons. All right, now we're a history podcast. Because they were anti-USSR. It's that simple. That's all it took to get American arms for <laughs> most of the 20th century. Foreign yep. po- U.S. foreign policy post-World War II was just arm both sides of the conflict and see what happens. And most of the time, it does not work out. Now we're a history podcast. <laughs> all right. Well, that's that's the best I can do. No, uh, I'm impressed. There, I mean, that's a, that's a, a lot a, of explosions. That's a great summary of the movie. There's a fantastic snow sequence. There's like sequences that I want to call out that yeah. I wasn't really oh, yeah. able There's to. There's incredible sequences in both of these movies that aren't necessarily worth mentioning as part of the plot or summary. Yeah. yeah I'm but sure there we'll are also the it. reasons to see this movie. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get into it, but uh, the bad guy's plot in The Living Daylights, I think, is the most complicated of any villain's plot. Uh, it, it's It's really something. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm not fully certain what happened on it. It's, uh, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel wrong. I'm. I'm no. I'm a fan. I think I like Living Daylights more out of these two. And some of that is like I couldn't tell you what happens in the film, but I'm mostly okay with it because I feel like the movie knows what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you are just very much along for the ride. There were yeah. moments where I blinked and I thought I missed things. Because it just it moves like a million yeah. miles an hour. It's but twisty it's all and turny, fun. and it feels. I mean, it is a classic Bond film, but it also has the most DNA in common with like the more modern Mission Impossible movies, where it's oh, like yeah. twist, yeah. twist, double a, twist. A lot of double agent stuff. A lot of like James Bond like hiding his face behind a, a turb, like not not a turban, like a face covering, and sneaking around, and so many explosions. I can't get over how many like, <laughs> and these are all like. This is like a kind of thing where it's, this is a strange time in film history that I feel like I actually haven't seen that many of this type of movies where the action like is cheesier in a certain sense because it has to be shot kind of wider. Yeah. There's a lot less dynamic camera movement. It's a lot more objective. The camera's not in there with people, but the stunts are both like very cheesy and kind of not selling, but then the explosions are just real. Because they're just really blowing up a bunch of shit. And that, it, like, it's this strange mix of, like, selling and not selling, where there's a lot of poor man's process where you're seeing, like, really fake outside of a car going by. And then they'll cut to, like, a pretty good looking, you know, guy jumping from a car to another car. And, like, there's just the, the line between the stuntmen and the actors is very much there yeah, it's really a shame that we didn't get any like uh, movies between license to kill and goldeneye because you know they would have like been influenced by john woo like just during <laughs> that period yeah and you would have gotten i mean that would have been that would have been that would have been pretty good uh do we want to jump into to license to kill summer or do we want to talk about this movie first how do we how about you summer well um I don't know. You actually, you guys. Sean, you're the, in charge. You guys are the podcasters. <laughs> uh, let, let's just go right to the next summary. Uh, let's go through it, and then we'll just pick, pick parts. Okay. 
All right, so this movie starts in Florida and stays in Florida for a little bit, where James Bond is the best man to Felix Leiter, but not the Felix Leiter we saw in Living Daylights, the actor from the Roger Moore era. A uh, little weird. Right. When it's, uh, real, real quick, because I'm actually confused about that. Who is So Felix Leiter is a person I was supposed to know. Felix Leiter is the American counterpart who's in a lot of the James Bond movies. In the Daniel Craig era, Jeffrey Wright plays him. Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the so CIA it's his, guy. He's usually CIA kind guy. of helpful, but <laughs> mostly yeah, just there but to like, move the story along. Also frequently antagonistic because their their agencies often have different goals. So which is why it's kind of weird that James Bond is just his best man, <laughs> which... I love it. <laughs> the James Bond movies have a tradition of just not understanding how spycraft works. Because James Bond is rarely pretending to be another person... His most famous catchphrase is him saying his name. <laughs> and and very clearly. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't miss it. Felix Leiter is called away by a Coast Guard helicopter to assist in uh, in a DEA raid of bad guy Franz Sanchez, which, A, played by famously Italian actor Robert Davey, <laughs> and mm-hmm, B, mm-hmm. that's not a thing that Felix Leiter would need to be involved at all, much less... On the night of his honeymoon, he just seems like... Wedding. Wedding, not honeymoon. Uh, oh, well, yes. Well, same day. Both. Yes. <laughs> the, on the night of his wedding. Uh, so they, they take down that guy and they, they rescue his... Is it his daughter or his girlfriend? I could not tell through girlfriend. that whole movie. Girlfriend. It is girlfriend. girlfriend. I could have sworn he yeah, called yeah. him Miha, which means daughter. <laughs> and it just... I don't know. You never see any... I, I couldn't tell. Like, it could have gone either way, and, like, the second time I watched it, I looked through for clues. This is how I summarize things, by the way, with a lot of asides. It would actually make more <laughs> just sense questions. if it was his daughter, I feel like. Because right? he's he catches her sleeping with this other guy. The guy yeah. gets his heart ripped out, but he just, like, whips her, and then they're cool again. Yeah, and that's the scene where he says, Miha, which, yeah, whatever. So, and then everything's great, and James Bond goes back to London and has a different adventure. Just kidding. <laughs> The agent who's supposed to transport Sanchez, uh, Big Ed from uh, Twin Peaks, Killifer, that's his name. You don't have to remember <laughs> Jesus it for long. Christ. Yeah, no, the name's Killifer. He, uh, name. As they're transporting Sanchez, they have a Mission Impossible 3 heist on a bridge, and he turns on him. They go through, they capture Felix Leiter. And uh, feed him to a shark and kill his pride. <laughs> that is the plot of the movie. And from there on, you are in a a revenge fantasy movie that James Bond is in for some reason. And y'all are well, going to have to help Bond me through the rest no of no longer a double O agent for this entire movie. Yeah. Yes. He has been disavowed, which you, you might know that word from another spy franchise. <laughs> His his mission is a, is a self-imposed mission to get justice for Felix Leiter, who may or may not be dead. <laughs> oh, he's alive. I don't think he... He's yeah, alive? He's, he's very much he, alive. We see him at the he end doesn't of the movie. come back in the movie, does he? He comes yeah. back at the end, yeah. He comes back... They, he goes and visits him in the hospital in the first part, which I was confused by because I thought he was dead. Because this is a movie I had actually seen before because, Sean, you had recommended it to me. And I I thought he was dead. I think, in my memory. Here's how I know he's alive. There's a party at the dead drug dealer's house at the end of the movie that, like, Q right. and everyone is at. And right, and I there. didn't see or him Or he there. calls into the party. Oh, he calls into the And party. he's, like, happy that, that I guess all of this has happened. 
I love this movie. Yeah, he's like, thanks for all this <laughs> rampaging. And because, uh, yeah, this movie also, it's, 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 it's really about James Bond getting in kind of a uh, man with no namesy. Like, oh, yeah. Getting in and being like, you know, maybe you should take me on. What's your, well, what's, what, what can you yeah. offer me? I have I have a certain set of skills. I have a certain set I of solve, skills. I'm a hitman. He's man. like, you solve problems? It doesn't matter that I half eliminate your problems. Has, <laughs> half your agency has seen me in this movie, and I'm going to be just wearing masks and, like, Scooby-Dooing around right. your yeah. compound. It doesn't matter that, like, I have a lot of opportunities to kill you and I'm not going to take them, even though I shot someone earlier in this movie and had to have a scuba chase scene. I like this movie, but it's a mess, and it's not really a James Bond movie, and that's going to be my thesis for for most of this podcast. That's going fair. On. Um, I I definitely get those complaints that it's it's like a big departure for the franchise. Um, but I think you know, like sixteen movies into a franchise, it's okay to kind of like try on something new. I love the kind of like Yojimbo uh, fistful of mm-hmm. dollars thing where it's like you go inside the organization and kind of tear it down from the inside by like planting these seeds of mistrust. And yeah. I think that I think what saves it from just being like an episode of Miami Vice, which a lot of people accuse it of being. And I understand I mean, that. Mm-hmm. I think the like geopolitical thing enough, but... is really interesting in this movie where it's not just a drug dealer. It's a guy who's completely undermined the government of this country in South America, where he's literally like paying the president a check in one scene and right. like to to basically pretend to be president. And the, all the president says, it's like, oh, it's half my usual amount. And it's just because he was very quiet during like the 12 hours that he was captured. And I think that this movie like went on to be very influential with just other action movies. I mean, watch the beginning of Dark Knight Rises. They completely duplicate the cold open of this movie. And um, had we continued to get more Timothy Dalton movies, I would have been really excited to keep to see it keep going in this direction. You know, like GoldenEye was originally written for Timothy Dalton. That's why that's mm-hmm. kind of a darker entry in that cycle. Um, uh, yeah, I just get real, I get that License to Kill is very flawed and just barely a Bond movie, but I, I love this movie and all its craziness. Yeah, so these this, were both the same director. Yeah, yeah, did, John like, Glenn. five more as well. Um, sorry, say again. Only, who did, like, the five before this as well, um, correct? Or well, you know, did, the, like, the Bond movies are interesting because people always get promoted from within. So John Glenn started as, like, an assistant editor way back when on these movies, and then he was an editor, then he was, like, a second unit director, and mm-hmm. then starting with For Your Eyes Only, they gave him the director's chair. So he did, like, I think he did five total. So he did three... It's weird because he did three, like, fairly campy more ones... And then he, like, went into this pretty, like, grounded, uh, I mean, comparatively to the rest of the series, these yeah, two Dalton that, ones. <laughs> you guys keep, you keep, you guys keep saying these, this is a return from camp, but there's still, like, there's a scene where. It's, it's still a Bond movie. <laughs> there, there's, there's, like, these enemies have a rocket launchers and they're pointing it at James Bond, who has just taken, like, a semi, like an 18-wheeler, and rammed a separate 18-wheeler off of a, like, mountain ledge, and then hits a ramp, proceeds to (laughs) drive on just half of the wheels of this thing to dodge a missile, 
and then lands it on the enemy's cars, just crushing it. And then amidst all the explosions, at some point ditches the back of the the, the semi truck and does a wheelie through oh, flames. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that is probably my favorite moment in the entire Bond franchise. So I was badass. I was thinking about that earlier because I had seen probably half of the movies. I'd seen everything from Brosnan on, and then I'd think I'd saw, seen one or two of each people before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have always said like the opening chase of Casino Royale was my favorite Bond moment. And so you also suggested, Sean, that we watch Live and Let Die uh, for additional context. And that movie has a sequence near the ends, which is probably tied for my second, which is a speedboat chase. But for some reason, they decide to tell it from the perspective of the Louisiana Police Department. <laughs> J.W. Pepper? You mean that guy? <laughs> yeah, which very much seems like it. Like this is how British people think Louisiana's like. Yes, 100%. <laughs> you get that through the whole thing. But it's, you know, it's 10, 20 minutes of speedboat chases where you don't have a close-up of James Bond or the bad guy. <laughs> Which is probably also, like, much easier to do stunts that way. Well, that's, and that's where, like, a lot of this is still you cut to, like, a close-up in the car and there's clearly, a like, a poor man's process background yeah. or screen replacement. Yeah, a lot of the technology, <laughs> especially in License to Kill, does not hold up. It's true. But there's... Yeah. Uh, Dalton does do a few it. of his own stunts, though, like when he's rappelling mm-hmm. down the building and some of even some of the aerial stuff. That's not poor man's process. Like, that's actually him kind of paving the way for Tom Cruise, perhaps a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> now, I was actually curious about those. Like, how much do you know about some of those stunts? Because some of them do look amazing. Yeah. And I'm yeah. wondering if it's just like they are doing screen replacement and like hanging the helicopter and the plane or... Oh, yeah. I think What's the, happening the, there? the craziest stunt between these two movies that they did almost 100% for real is the net in Living, Le- in Living Daylights, that like yeah. heroin net that's dangling out the back of the right. plane. Those so were just real got... guys hanging on for dear life. Uh, that's insane. Yeah. Um, they had to have probably packs or something like, uh, what are those called? Yeah. Parachutes. I mean, I'm sure there were some safety, uh, devices in place, but like most yeah. of what you see is real. And there was a, there's a crazy behind the scenes documentary about it where the guy, the, there was, the net was moving so wildly in the wind that he almost got knocked unconscious. And for whatever reason oh, in shit. that shot, if that had happened, he, he'd just die. Yeah, because uh, then you can't pull yeah. your own shoes. Like they, Someone... they were pretty crazy with their stunts at this time. Um, and I feel like, unfortunately, it's sort of undercut by some of those close-ups you're talking about, where like <laughs> it'll be a guy actually hanging on a Jeep, and then a close-up of Dalton with, you know, like so, like rear projection, essentially. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a charm to it, but yeah, yeah it definitely does not sell. <laughs> and it's like the first part in bond history where the filmmaking technology can make it feel like a modern action movie because the movie before this was a view to a kill <laughs> and when you've got even just a couple years earlier when you've got roger moore doing these same things at yeah. 56 or whenever whenever he is now now it's probably a good time to ask uh sean how old do you think james bond should be because every actor has a different idea of this. Mm-hmm. I th- I think probably mid-40s. Like, he needs to be kind of believable as someone who's experienced a bit of the world. 
Um, I think that I, I'm curious to see what direction they go in if this is indeed Craig's final movie, No Time to Die. But what I hope they don't do is try and have like a really young actor play him because I feel like he needs to be a little, you know, if not world weary, then at least believable that he's, you know, seen some shit. Yeah, I mean, Daniel Craig was like late 30s for that first movie, and that yeah. that always feels right. Every Most of the actors have been like early 40s, and then mm-hmm. some of them are just Bond a little bit too long. Craig will be late 30s until about 50, I think, is when he filmed No Time <laughs> to Die. Uh, that feels that feels right to me, but it could also just be because that's like my biggest Bond influence. Yeah, I think it also just depends on the actor. I mean, you know... Uh, it's crazy to think that Craig is approaching the same age as Roger Moore when he was doing some of those movies. I think just our yeah. our ability to preserve ourselves has improved, maybe. <laughs> they <laughs> or maybe don't just look Craig the same is age. more conscious about such things. I'll throw out yeah. my favorite fact. Vin Diesel and Paul Giamatti are the exact same age. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. And John Cena and John Oliver. As, yeah, uh, yeah. to like the same day. <laughs> So, you know, bodies work differently. And also, like, what we value as an action star. You can even see this in, like, Batman in the 90s. Is Most most of the Batman weren't in superhero shape. Michael Mm -hmm. Keaton didn't exactly bulk up. Val Kilmer did a little bit. But, like, when you get to, like, Christian Bale or Ben Affleck, they are in full-on superhero chiseled mode. And I think Mm -hmm. that's just kind of maybe audiences expect that more i think it is audience expectation you know like even brosnan was not particularly built it wasn't until craig and casino royale where we have like supposedly a secret agent who you know will walk into the room with like basketballs for biceps (laughs) and it's like oh that guy can't possibly be a secret agent but uh, i mean that's still how i feel about every single james bond because sean correct me if i'm wrong here have you heard James Bond do an accent of any kind or pretend to be not British? Um, I mean, he he, he does uh, foreign languages. I mean, I know that Sean Connery poses as a Japanese man and you only live twice. Oh, my. <laughs> with regret, with uh, regrettable <laughs> uh, results. Um, but yeah, he I know what you're saying. Like, he normally just goes by his own name. Yeah. <laughs> his, his catchphrase is his own name, said in a really weird way uh and yeah but yeah normally he's just himself is it uh is it die another day that basically just starts with him on assignment and some guy's like no that's that's james bond that's clearly a british agent in the capture <laughs> but that's the opening <laughs> yeah i don't ah, think it's the played opening for of the die another day is not bad but that movie really <laughs> becomes a disaster um yeah especially if all these movies take place in the same universe that you have you know, it's like in, in Die Hard where people don't know who John McClane is. John McClane is a hero cop. Like, he, he would have at least the same acclaim as, like, I don't know, Captain Sully or something. Like, a name mm-hmm. that you recognize and everyone continues to not know him even though he gets in increasing stakes situations and saves buildings, <laughs> airports, New York, United States, whatever happened in the fifth movie I didn't see. Yeah, they... <laughs> that's definitely a good point and i actually think about this too like when we watch these timothy dalton movies and they touch on the fact that in license to kill they even address his dead wife briefly 
connecting right. directly to Lazenby in the 60s and it's like okay so are we to assume this same guy was the guy who went undercover dressed as a clown and octopusy two movies ago <laughs> like so I think that you kind of have to pick and choose your own like canon when you watch these movies like I almost think of Timothy Dalton's movies as like a soft reboot of the franchise a little bit mm-hmm. because there's no way that this same person would have been in the situations that the Roger Moore bond was you know Right, but at the I do s- like the idea of just this expanding canon that, like, it, it you can kind of pick and choose as you reboot what is worth you want to expand on and what is something that you're just going to, like, let rest until the next director team takes on. Yeah, Terminator Which to style. me is kind of, it's like the best part of, you know, like, comics are so dense and frightening to enter, but, like, when you get the beautiful stuff, like, part of the enjoyment is that you did get to pick up on, like, oh, shit, that's a reference to this run that this other person did way back when. Wow, that fits in really cool. What a cool way to, like, change and reflect on that. Which is something that, like, again, the Bond movies for me have been kind of frightening because there are 25 of them. But in the same way, I totally can see where that can lead to some really fun places to pick up on, like, oh, but damn, yeah, I forgot that his wife died. That must be really fucking him up right now. And that is, yeah, because in License to Kill, that's the first time I heard it mentioned in, like, five or six movies before, like, James Bond was was married, and, uh, Sean, what happened there? Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I know that Christopher Nolan has pointed directly to that one, like, he's a big James Bond fan, and that's, like, his favorite. So I'm assuming she dies in it. Yeah, like, basically, um, that's the movie where he kind of finally finds the one like he uh he meets this woman uh kind of tangential to the case he's on and the end of the movie like after the climax of the movie after it's all wrapped up they there's a scene at their wedding and bond marries this woman and they drive off together and then there's basically a drive-by shooting where blofeld and his uh henchwoman kill her and the it literally just ends with him holding his dead wife, and it's like, oh my god, this is dark. <laughs> roll That's credits. Like, yeah, roll credits. He just holds her and cries. And you would think Jesus. that that would be the opportunity in the franchise to have a great revenge movie, but instead they bring back Sean Connery, and we get Diamonds Are Forever, which is a very goofy movie. Uh, so I almost feel like License to Kill is kind of finally giving us that, you know... Filling our bloodlust that we were never given after that movie. So so I think that it was pretty intentional to invoke that movie in that moment. So the Hmm. dead wife arc is in Lazenby's only movie? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) He gets to do one movie. Which makes it probably even easier to retcon, basically. And then, like, bring up eventually when they feel like it. I recommend for anyone interested in that, uh, there's a great and hilarious documentary on Hulu called Becoming Bond that's mostly mm-hmm. just interviewing George Lazenby and, like, famous comedians, like, reenacting parts of his life. But it's kind of badass the way he kind of just bullshitted his way into getting this part with really no acting experience. And he got basically the best Ian Fleming book on Her Majesty's Secret Service. He went in, did that one movie, and then just left. <laughs> and basically never did anything again. Uh, that's a really fascinating little sliver of, of this franchise. Seems like a good life. Yeah. <laughs> Come and be Bond and then just fuck off with your Bond money. Which probably no, wasn't cur- that much back then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
Well, yeah, that's something I'm still curious about is like, so Sean Connery was relatively unknown at the time. Mm-hmm. And our boy for these two movies was known in like a very different scene. Like he was yeah. doing the higher, like the kind of posher BBC stuff. So what kind of budget level was this era of Bond? Um, You know, it was it was pretty... I mean, by our standards, it was pretty modest. I'd say both of these are mm-hmm. around the 30 million range. But at the time, that's, you know, a, a pretty, like, good-sized budget for these. But typically what happened is these actors would be brought on. I think for his first movie, Dalton got a pretty modest salary, like a half million pounds or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that your contract improves the longer you stay on board. Like, and you just constantly renegotiate for more and more. What happened with Dalton, unfortunately, was License to Kill kind of underperformed. It was in that summer of 89, which had like Batman and Ghostbusters 2 mm-hmm. and Lethal Weapon 2. And there were like a lot of legal problems with the franchise. So you ended up getting like six years without a Bond movie. And by that point, wow. it was kind of like, well, we we kind of just need to bring in a new actor now. And it was kind of a... It was, it was the sort of thing where, like, Dalton stepped down, but it kind of felt like at that that was probably the right move for him, just because it, it even though GoldenEye was very much written with him in mind, it was kind of like Brosnan's turn at that point. Yeah, Brosnan, who they also wanted to bring on as Bond years earlier. But yeah, a television even for contract. Living Daylights, yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, maybe he would have been too young at that point, by your, by your standards at least, but... Uh, I don't know. Brosnan always had the physicality to me that I wanted from Timothy Dalton, because even though he's out there doing his own stunts, there's still sequences in those movies where the action, it takes a second or two longer than it should for a stuntman to jump in the back of a car or react (laughs) to a punch. Yeah. Well, and, and this is still the, and I don't know if that's also just, when I think about Sean Connery doing stunt work and fight choreography as well, it's definitely like you, grab someone's shirt, wind up, and then punch. Yes. <laughs> it's like definitely the like the Star Trek, like Kirk is yeah. who I think of classically as the most comic version yeah. of that. But like these punches are telegraphed. They're very telegraphed. And this is also still the era of filmmaking where there's a lot of uh, people getting knocked out by being hit on the back of the neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, it's also... It's also very hard. The way that we knock people out in movies now is just with a side hook to the face. That also Mm -hmm. would rarely knock someone out. And if it does, like, they might be dead. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. like, it's a lot easier to accept visually. And maybe we'll look back at that 30 years from now and be like, obviously we know that you flick people in the chin to knock them out. (laughs) It's interesting how, like, you know, we accept... You know, blue is moonlight is one of, like, the most classic, like, film language things. That's what night looks like. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think of like the karate chop at the back of the neck is film language for a knockout blow. Yeah. Yeah. That um is just language that we have come to accept and recently it's kind of been fading out of use and has kind of it's become quaint probably saying like saying thank you kindly or you know those kind of just things that are just kind of being lost to time. Yeah. They look old <laughs> in license to kill in a scene i don't think we've talked about yet because we haven't mentioned the the american femme fatale in that movie they meet up at a bar in the bahamas and benicia del toro who i also mm-hmm. didn't mention is in this movie <laughs> as like his first role and he's my favorite part of the movie and another henchman sit down and at one point bond just slams him on the table 
and it knocks him out, but it doesn't immediately knock him out. He, like, stumbles back into his seat and then passes out. <laughs> He's had enough. That's 80s action film language. <laughs> the shotgun pointed out the crotch, too, that just, like, blows up the bar and a bar fight erupts and everyone's punching everyone, which I, I just, you know, I miss those days. <laughs> it's crazy that, scene... that Roadhouse came out the same year because otherwise oh, wow. I'd be so certain that they were doing a Roadhouse riff. But maybe just something was yeah. in the ether at that time, just having <laughs> sleazy bar fights. It was the eighties. Yeah, taking yeah. taking Cocaine the swordfish off the wall and using it. As oh a, my uh, god! <laughs> yeah, uh, as a weapon is amazing. The gigantic swordfish uh, chair duel. <laughs> oh my god they, yeah. they give some time to that's like a full 30 seconds of film it's great yeah i'll concede that that dalton isn't the best with like the physical hand-to-hand stuff i mean really we didn't get much of that until the brosnan era of like really right. impressive fights i mean the connery and more ones are also pretty lame i think it has more to do with just our like movie language of the time yeah, yeah. but what i love that dalton brings to the part is just kind of this ruthlessness like more famously would never would try to avoid killing anybody in cold blood as his bond there's a scene in free your eyes only where he has to like kick a like a car is on this precipice like just barely hanging on and bond like kicks it off the cliff and it's like super cold-blooded and badass but um more like sort of lobbied against that, whereas Dalton is just going. Yeah, all I forget. In on Did this. Timothy Dalton uh, murder anyone in License <laughs> to Kill? Like I, I just love the. Uh, there's a kill in License to Kill where um, he, nice. his his buddy Sharky, his name is Sharky, has been mm-hmm. killed uh, by one of the henchmen, and they're coming into the boat, and he's like hung up like a fish. And uh, you just see this rage consuming Dalton's face and he picks up a harpoon, like not even really thinking about it. And he's like, compliments of Sharky and just executes him. (laughs) And that's just like, so like, just like it's on another planet than the Roger Moore bond. And I just, those moments are, I mean, there's kind of, kind of old hat in movies now, but in the context of bond, like it's, it's pretty shocking to see like that kind of cold bloodedness. My favorite Dalton murder is uh, when he's taking revenge on the turncoat agent who has like been paid off two million to yes, Killifer has been paid has made two million in helping spring this drug dealer. And it's a lot of chum. James Bond has broken into the shark building. I don't (laughs) know what that business is. Shark aquarium. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shark aquarium that no longer has sharks, is what they're trying to do. Um, but there is a secret shark hiding in the floorboards and um, where, that they fed uh, Felix Leiter to. And so Bond gets the CIA agent, hangs him from the same chain that they hung uh, Felix Leiter from. And he says, like, I've got two million. We can split it. And he goes, no, I think you've earned it and throws <laughs> it to him. <laughs> fall, like, and he grabs it and falls into the shark and just gets eaten. And uh, Sharky goes, like, what a waste. And James Bond's like, What other movie has multiple (laughs) shark murders, like a huge tinker chase at the end, Uh, ninjas, uh, like, it just has everything you want in a movie. That's what I love about Life is It is, I mean, it's over the top and crazy. Like, Live and Let Die has most of those things. I don't know, but it's, I feel like Live and Let Die is, 
is a little less coherent than this. Like, I feel like this has more of a, like, clear narrative. And, um, I don't know, just Dalton's performance is so much... He's just fun to watch in this character. I think that Mm -hmm. that's the main reason I'm I'm drawn to these two. And, uh, just really quick, in Living Daylights, um... There, I think another thing that I like about Dalton is just kind of the balance between these elements because not only does he have this hard edge that that Craig is kind of having a field day with now, but he's also got kind of the softer side. Like there's moments when he's posing as Koskov's friend uh, in Vienna right. in Living Daylights where he's just like on a date with this woman and they're, they go to the opera and he's like whispering funny things to her and they're having a laugh about it and it's like, Ah oh, man, this is like really sweet. He's like the he's like the friend who wants to be a little bit more and just like all these little things that are added to the character, I feel like really help humanize Bond, especially after he's been kind of a cartoon character for the last 14 movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also couldn't shake though that like he's supposed to be with his friend's girlfriend is the cover that he's trying to exploit. <laughs> well, he's also got so a he's just like, Gavin. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's just like, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not, here to, to show my friend's girlfriend a good time. Let's go ride this, uh, let's go ride this Ferris wheel. I'm going to pay them deposit at the top so we can have some alone time. All right. Let me turn off these lights. You know, the, the sky <laughs> looks so much more pretty when, in, when the mood lighting is set. So I'll, I'll agree that uh, Timothy Dalton works better than previous Bonds as a man of violence. Uh, I'm not fully on board that he, that he is as much of a, of a ladies' man. And I, I can never tell when that's the actual Bond or that's the filmmaking. The, uh, the scene I was talking about earlier, uh, the bar brawl, ends with them on a boat. And they just start <laughs> kissing. And... Here's the thing. I would buy it if they just tore into each other after narrowly escaping. Like, that's a very, like, primal human response that I would buy. But they play it as, like, romance. But it's... They've known each other for, like, 10, 15 minutes, and they were having romantic kisses. Oh, yeah. They're I don't, not wasting time. What's, yeah. What's and, the line there? Uh, why don't you, you wait? Did, why don't you ask? Well, <laughs> why don't you ask me? <laughs> Yeah. Which comes back again, you know, that's the through line of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I noticed in, like, later Bonds, like, Brosnan and Craig do this too, although throughout all the Craig's movies, you you get, you at least have the context that every woman who enters his life will not be Ava Green from Casino Royale. It's a really mm-hmm. good through line. Uh, but, nope, lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. ending of this movie too where he's like making out with one girl and the other girl gets insulted and runs away <laughs> and she's like we could still s-. which is unusual usually the other bond girl is dead by that point yeah. in the movie mm-hmm. which is one yeah. of the things i like about license to kill it's like they killed enough women in this movie right at the start letting them both live like letting the uh letting the villain's uh girlfriend also live is like so cool like that never happens in these movies <laughs> that's true but it creates this kind of gross love triangle between the three of them. And I don't understand why the villain's girlfriend is in love with Bond so fast, who they've barely interacted. Yeah, both of both of those relationships kind of have switches that are just thrown, it feels like, yeah. at different points in the movie. It's, it's the Dalton switch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the American Girls one, too. Like, when that happens, like, they're they're escaping on a boat after, like, a brawl that turned into a gunfight. And at which point they barely escaped the boat they're on has been shot up. So it's leaking gasoline and they're just left drifting in an ocean. 
probably still being chased was the thing that I kept thinking about. I'm like, why are they flirting right now? Yeah. They're in mortal danger. <laughs> but I guess that's Bond. I don't Watching know. more of these classic Bonds, that was a thing that happened. Is Another another entry in the Bond is not a good spy column is he will frequently just be late to things or postpone things to get laid. <laughs> yeah. There's a moment in Casino Royale, which is a, a similar thing, where he's he's totally going to the to bone the, the villain's girlfriend earlier on. And he finds out about this plot and he calls up for champagne and he asks for two, and he goes, no, for one. He doesn't have time to sleep with the villain's girlfriend. He's got to do spy stuff. If that was Roger Moore, he would have slept with her and then been, like, yes. two hours late to the airplane the, crash. Literally what happened to Live and Let Die. <laughs> We've talked about the Mission Impossible, is it two, where he's dating the, the master thief? Yeah. Yes. Which is a, a, a column of, like, these weird, like, romantic drama parts of spy movies is such a rich and storied part of this genre. It is really fun to see how people can play with them and change them up, which I don't know how much Bond does. That's something I'm kind of curious about. It's almost every movie, I feel like, is there's <laughs> there's some sort of dalliance with some from a woman from the other side. Like, uh, yeah. In, I mean, the famous one is uh, Goldfinger, where uh, Pussy Galore, the uh, Bond girl in that movie... Not to be confused with Octopussy. Yeah, not to be confused with Octopussy. Um, a lot of women named Pussy. Thanks, Ian Fleming. <laughs> you did it. He, uh, like, basically, there's a there's a through line in especially the Connery ones. And this is, comes right from the Fleming books. And it's very unfortunate where Bond basically uses his penis to turn evil women over to the good side. Uh... <laughs> And thankfully, that's less of a thing now, but that's that's definitely a, a part of the DNA of the character. You guys want to talk about ninjas? Let's do it. There's there's ninjas in one of these movies. And I did oh, yeah. not see that coming. Yeah, that's definitely like part of the 80s pastiche. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not my favorite element of License to Kill. Uh, I kind of just roll with it. They don't dally on it, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. like, for a scene and a half, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But in that time, like, each of the ninjas get characterization, and, like, they get a death sequence. There is they were real loss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, because those were ninja cops. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> the, the ninja sequence uh, leads to my favorite section of License to Kill, where he's totally ingratiated himself upon Sanchez. And that, to me, right. is, like the heart of the movie of kind of like weaseling his way in uh and and just taking down the organization from the inside i know that's something that's been done a lot and there's movies that are more celebrated for that uh you know like Mm -hmm. i mentioned like yojimbo and fistful of dollars but like rarely is it this satisfying because those movies did not end in tanker truck chases where the trucks did wheelies right yes but there's also something really fun about sanchez which is that he is explicitly over and over stating like, I don't care about money. We have enough money. I care about loyalty. And that's the only thing he cares about is he wants the people around him to be loyal. When like Bond is showing up and trying to sow distrust between him and his men, he says like, is it, you know, someone's came after your life. Is there anyone that you don't trust? He's like, I don't distrust anyone in my organization. And it's like said confidently, (laughs) And, like, his business is drug dealing and money laundering. <laughs> yeah. But, like, you should not he trust trusts anyone in your organization. Everyone. Yeah. I mean, granted, that, like, is 
smoothed over pretty fast when um, he's like, oh, that man tried to kill me. Why did he do it? Money. Here's the fake money. And then he's like, oh, you think he acted alone? This is enough evidence. Time for a trial. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's part of, like, him getting him to doubt his instincts and sort of sending him into this, like, crazy tailspin. Like, long before Sanchez is set on fire, he's kind of lost everything already. (laughs) Like, his entire temple uh, that Wayne Newton has set up is gone. Right, he just has, they have, like, a cult. That's part of how they launder their money, is having this giant... Yeah, the the (laughs) televangelist who, who, like, tells everyone, like, what the going price of a kilo is. I love that detail. Oh, that was Uh, great. Yeah, there's so much... It's just a feast, this movie. (laughs) Bless your heart. It does. He gets robbed and his response is, ah, bless your heart. (laughs) That happens again later. It's a good callback. These are really fun movies. And, like, I, I, again, haven't seen that many Bonds. But, like, so much of what I do know about Bond from pop culture is in this. You've got, like, the keys that he whistles at that, like, explode in, like, a stun grenade kind of thing. You've got the car that I I think it's in the first movie that we watched. The Aston Martin, yeah. Yeah, and it's got machine guns, it's got, you know, oil slit. It's got, like, all the spy car stuff in it, including turning into skis so they can race. Oh, that scene is is great. One of the nice things about revisiting these older ones I haven't seen is I get a new appreciation for a lot of the callbacks in the Craig mm-hmm. movies. Because one, one of the good parts of Spectre, which is not a very good movie, is the scene where he is driving a plane and there is a, a ground plane chase sequence in probably the Alps. Yeah, and cool. I didn't realize that, like, no, that is a callback to a thing that happened in The Living Daylights where he drives a, a house with a car inside. <laughs> <laughs> also, while we're talking about the Aston Martin chase really quick, what I there's been a million of these chases with the souped-up cars, with all the gadgets. Mm-hmm. The difference with this one is there's a civilian in the car with him who's, like, experiencing this in real time. Like, when the Mm -hmm. heads-up display comes up, there's one of my favorite Dalton lines where he's like, I've had some optional extras installed. (laughs) Where he's kind of just trying to pass off all of this as like, no, we're just in a really nice car. (laughs) And that's just, like, such a fun wrinkle that just takes that chase (laughs) to the next level of, like, having her there while he's activating all of these different gadgets. He's got a bad joke for every single gadget, and it's pretty great. And they wind up, like, skating along on part of the Aston Martin using a Stradivarius cello as, like, their only defense from being shot at. Yeah. And then he's like, quick, pull out your passport. Show them to the guards as we, like, (laughs) go across the border, sledding away from machine gun fire. (laughs) That's uh, so good. I feel like this is yet another in the column of uh, bad spy work. Is before <laughs> it's like you know, once you're in a chase and you have your souped up car, that's fine. The car is is a part of the world now, and you are not revealing that you are a spy because it's more important to use the rocket launchers and skis to escape the scenario. But the rest of the time, it's as simple as you know this is a British car, so the steering wheel is on the other side as how everyone else is driving. And if you were going to be a spy of that country, you would make certain your car looks like the cars in that country. Well, the man gets results, Sage. I do like that he has an auto-destruct, so the uh, the KGB can't get the plans for the Aston Martin when he's done mm-hmm. with it. <laughs> also, Q being in, in the latter movie, just kind of showing up and doing like the, oh, your uncle's here. 
Uh, I really enjoyed their interplay, and like I really was afraid he'd actually su- be successful in getting rid of him and sending him back to England. But he just keeps showing up, and that the actor playing Q in these movies, is yeah, delightful. and that's his biggest role. And Desmond Llewellyn's like biggest role is in License to Kill, and it's kind of a nice payoff after like you know being in almost all of the ones previously. I think he skips Doctor No and Live and Let Die, but um. Oh, okay. He's yeah, he uh, he's in time. all of them, and usually just for a scene. But they really give him meal in this one. And there's a great yeah. scene where they kind of pay. Like usually, Bond is just very dismissive, and they have this kind of combative relationship where Bond is like doesn't treat his gadgets with respect. <laughs> but there's a great insane. moment where Bond is essentially going on what he considers to be likely a suicide mission, where he's going to blow up the window and snipe. Uh, both of mm-hmm. these movies have great sniper rifles uh, where he's going to snipe Sanchez and he looks at Q and he's like, he's about to leave and he's kind of like conscious of the fact that this might be goodbye. Like I might not come back from this. And he says to Q like, thank you for all your good work. You're a hell of a field agent. And Q like, can't believe his ears. And he like gets right. out of the car and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and that's just like a nice kind of like pat on the back. We probably didn't hear him because he's 107 years old. How many, how many, so, because he was also, up until his death, he was in some of the Boston ones. Yeah, up until World is Not Enough, when they are kind of grooming John Cleese to be his replacement, which is a little unfortunate, as much as I like John Cleese. I mean, it almost works to its credit, like, I don't know how old Desmond Lewitt is at the end there, but however old he is, he... He looks at he for him to be the tech geek developing oh, gadgets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ben Wishaw makes more sense, way that I but like he's not as fun as Desmond Llewellyn, like the cantankerous <laughs> old man with all the yeah. gizmos. The 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 speaker that has like a rocket launcher in it. Yeah, the Americans ask for it. They call it a ghetto blaster. <laughs> I always think of Q as his Alfred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, very much so. So we've talked for about an hour about Bond, and we haven't gotten to one of the quintessential things of every Bond movie, which is the theme music, the the songs mm-hmm. written for it. Um, where these two, I'm going to say they're pretty forgettable because I have already forgotten what they are. <laughs> Sean, do you have thoughts on that? Um, I have thoughts on that. I think that they're memorable to me mostly because I've seen these movies so many times. Um, of the two... Uh, so Living Daylights is Aha, uh, you know, right. Take On Me, famously. And then License to Kill is a little more just kind of like what's come before. It's Gladys Knight. I think it's kind of similar to to Tina Turner's GoldenEye in a lot of ways. Um, but I think Living Daylights is a really good theme and a kind of underappreciated one. What's funny is they always kind of go for artists for these songs a little after their heyday. Like, Aha mm-hmm. had kind of already had, they're kind of a one-hit wonder in a lot of ways. And similar with Gladys Knight, what I find interesting is No Time to Die, the, the upcoming Bond movie. They got Billie Eilish to do the theme and it's striking because it's the first time where I kind of feel like they got an artist right when she was like at peak popularity. But well, because Sam of Smith COVID, of course, one. it's been delayed. Yeah. So by the time we finally <laughs> get the movie, it'll kind of be like the rest of the movies where it's kind of like a year after their big hit. Um, but to answer your question, I would say both these songs have like nostalgic value to me. Of the two, I definitely prefer Living Daylights. I think 
I like Gladys Knight a lot, but this song, it's just, it's a little too like late 80s R&B, like with a lot of like the really soft rock kind of synth that just isn't my cup of tea. And similarly with the title sequence, um, you know, Maurice Binder, who'd done all, most all of the title sequences since Dr. No, he was getting pretty lazy towards the end. <laughs> I welcomed the more kind of CG heavy ones, starting with GoldenEye. I th- just think those are better title sequences. There is, there's a weird photography theme to the uh, titles of License to Kill that just doesn't make any sense. I guess it's because he's got a camera gun. Yeah, he's but got a camera sniper it's a, rifle. I, I, if I'm going to point to flaws in these flawless movies, <laughs> I will admit that the title <laughs> sequences aren't great. That camera sniper rifle, by the way, by the time it's turned into a gun, looks nothing like a camera. <laughs> right. No. It's, it yeah. seems if you know anything about cameras or guns, you were just flabbergasted that they had the balls yeah. to put that together. Yeah. Oh, boy. I like that they uh, they run some like 80s drum samples across the James Bond theme as it goes through. Uh, but it's a little disappointing. Like... Uh, because we keep talking about three movies that start with L, I keep confusing the titles. <laughs> Living Daylights should have like a cello theme throughout the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? That's a good point. <laughs> like, why doesn't it take advantage of that? That would be a simple thing that would elevate it. In License to Kill, was I mistaken? Am I mistaken or was there a series of gunfire that did the Bond theme song? Yes. That's a when it hits history. a car. Yeah. <laughs> During cool. the uh, tanker cool, cool, chase, cool. when he when like Sanchez is shooting his like micro Uzi out the window, yeah, at the tanker, the ricochet is going. Burp, 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 burp. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty. Every time wonderful. you keep you keep telling me how grounded these movies are, and then something like that happens, and or like um, we haven't talked too much about the arms dealer villain in the second movie, where he's got like his. His lair of um, military history. Oh, in Living and, Daylights. Yeah, uh, or yeah. Is, yeah, in Living Daylights. Sorry, but yeah. Oh my god, that like fight scene where he's like got the gun with the armor on top of it that like Bond <laughs> only shoots for the armor. <laughs> it's like a windshield. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so enjoyable. It was pretty great. Yeah. Like, Again, like uh, I know that I keep saying how grounded these are, uh, and they are very very silly movies, but. You're comparing him to Moonraker. <laughs> I think I'm talking more about the way the actor treats the character. For me, it's mm-hmm. like going from Adam West Batman to Michael right. Keaton Batman, to make okay. another uh, Batman uh, comparisons age. Uh, because, yes, it's still campy in a way, but the actor at the center of it, of it is, like, taking this role He's seriously. playing it like, straight. If yeah. I was this character given this mission, like, how would I behave? And... Like, again, like, I like the Roger Moore ones, but it's kind of, like, all jelly, no toast. And, like, this is, like, mm-hmm. very much getting into who is this person? Like, is it like is he more than just the guy with the martini and the gadgets? Like, can we humanize this? And uh, I think that Dalton does a really good job of that, even as the trappings around him are often very silly. I'll say he's believable in the movies, even if he's not super believable as an action <laughs> hero or as a ladies' man. But he's uh, yeah, he's treating the character somewhat seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I bought him. I, 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 I'll accept it. Um, I wanted to ask if there's any other set pieces you guys want to call out before we move into final judgments. 
I mean, my big ones were definitely the ski slope driving a house and the uh, <laughs> the 18-wheeler on nine wheels for far too long until it was time. Like, the control oh, of that so car, magical. which, by the way, that's like a, a random semi that is not a spy car that has an autopilot function on it. So. Hell yeah. I don't think that's <laughs> if there is it's not a big button that says auto drive um i want to call out two really quick one from each movie um living daylights that cold open in gibraltar is just one of my favorite cold yeah. opens of any of the movies and it's tight it like it's like not a throwaway like it sets up the um kind of false flag like spirit spionum death despise plot in an mm-hmm. interesting way mm-hmm. they do a great thing that they later do in golden eye where they kind of tease your first look at this guy like you kind of just they kind of show you a bunch of different dudes who kind of all could be bond but then when you finally get that pull in on a windswept Dalton just on a cliff as the guy falls to his death, it's just so great. And the other one that I want to talk about is in License to Kill, where it's basically it's a it's when he's on uh, the wave crest and he's sneaks aboard, harpoons the guy. It goes from land to sea to air where he harpoons a guy <laughs> that he doesn't like. <laughs> and kills him and then mm-hmm. jumps in after grabs his scuba gear has an underwater fight aims his harpoon up at a plane and is then water skiing behind the plane catches up to the plane throws both of the people out of the plane <laughs> presumably to their deaths and then takes off with five million dollars in cash and he just has this great reaction that's like a hundred percent dalton where he just like looks at the cash laughs and throws it over his shoulder i love that whole sequence and like a lot of that is like just practical stunt work like it's amazing yeah, it's wild they must be paying special agents more because, like, <laughs> well, I guess I guess a lot of other double O's have turned to gun corruption, but James Bond is so happy to just throw away free money. <laughs> he's just he's bound by duty and loyalty. You yeah, are to but he's willing to be late for a job because of his dick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's still a ranking even when you are bound by loyalty and duty. Also, Sanchez has a pet iguana with a diamond <laughs> necklace, and it's very good. So awesome. Yeah, so cool. iguanas are a girl's best friend, as uh, the movie <laughs> posits. Um, yes. Well, I, there's I, nothing I say, in the rule book that James Bond can't play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Should we now? Since we kind of covered two movies, I feel like what we have to do is instead of doing the movies, we're going to discuss Timothy Dalton and whether he's still good. Ooh, is Timothy Dalton so, still oh, good? Man. So, taking both this career, these this moment in his career together, is this still good is this better as a memory or is this something we should bury in the ground and never speak of again i'm gonna put it as as better as a memory i enjoyed these movies much more than i expected to and most of the reason for that is the 80s bond movies i had seen were the roger moore ones which are universally considered not very good octopussy uh which i got to see in india uh at the place that it was filmed and a view to a kill like Roger Moore is far too old to be Bond at this point. Um, but these movies are a lot of fun. I've outlined my my problems with Timothy Dalton as as an action hero and as a ladies man and as just how action movies treat violence and women during this time is is mm-hmm. not what I want to see as film language. 
I I would keep Living Daylights. That one almost makes it to still good for me because that is more of the traditional international espionage thriller that I'm very drawn to, whereas I feel Man of Extraordinary Violence on a Revenge Mission, I have seen that movie better because it is still too too campy and just it's too fun for the story it's telling, I think, because it ultimately is a different movie that has James Bond in it for some reason. So I'm saying better as a memory. There are two Bond actors I like more. Kind of just goes in reverse chronological order for my rankings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Okay. Now, I, I again, haven't seen that many Bond movies. So I've seen, like, all the modern ones. By modern, I mean the most, our current Bond. So this was really interesting for me. I had seen License to Kill once before. What I really liked about these movies was kind of the camp factor. But I appreciate camp when it is played straight, Mm -hmm. where I think Timothy Dalton really shone in that role because he brought, you know, this charm and like, but also everything kind of had, you know, stakes too. the explosions felt real. There were like some places where the technology wasn't there to sell these things, but that almost made it more charming when these actors played them straight. And I would say most of the performances are really fun. I do think the women characters, specifically their relationships and turns and their affections towards Bond, are very poorly written. And the girlfriend of Sanchez in the second movie is really bad in her performance. It's 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 really bad. <laughs> but it's like not great. No. But the action sequences, like Q, Dalton. The villain, even though he is, like, I do know him as an Italian actor, he really <laughs> sold the Italian. shit out of that movie. Yeah. Also, like, the way all the villains in, in Living Daylights really bring a lot to those roles. The villains in both these movies are super fun. Even, like, the minor villains. the, the Especially the, the minor villains. The, the, the shark, the dude who owns the shark farm in the second movie is super yeah. fun to watch. Super charismatic. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm gonna go ahead and say these are still good. They have their detractions, but like, they are certainly worth seeing. There's just for the explosions and the way like they spent money at this time is worth seeing because the emphasis that they put in these movies is just such a joy. Even though a lot of the effects are dated, some of the performances aren't as strong, and the writing's not incredible. There's just so much good shit in it. So yeah, I am at still that. good, Sean. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this isn't a surprise. Uh, still good for me. Sean, um, how do you feel about these movies you own and want <laughs> to us to talk about? That I own on multiple formats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I honestly don't know how much of this is rooted in nostalgia. If I had been introduced to these movies for the first time now, would I feel the same way? I honestly don't know. Uh, you know, it's just like everyone has their bond. Dalton is mine. Uh, I, you know, like when I read the Ian Fleming books, I'm not thinking of Connery. I'm not thinking of Craig. I'm thinking of Dalton. And mm-hmm. I think just, yes, like there's, these are definitely flawed movies. They're definitely of their time. But, you know, in this series of 25 movies, like these are the two that I revisit over and over and over again. And I think a lot of it has to do just kind of like with what Dalton brought to the role. 
I, I push back a little bit on the love interests in these movies. I think Living Daylights, the relationship, uh, Miram Diabo's character, I think that that works. That's always worked yeah, for no, me. She, she's yeah, she's great. Yeah. It's, it's, I, lot, I'll concede that License to Kill, the love interests are a little half baked. I think. Yeah. Like honestly, like another draft of that script, I think would have smoothed out some of those problems. But maybe a recasting think, of the. <laughs> yeah. The, the, I think I think that uh, those those issues aside, it's just like I love these movies on just like such an emotional level, mm-hmm. and I think I always will. Like I, I mean, I'll probably introduce when I introduce my future children to Bond. I, I'm not sure if I'll start with Connery. I might just start them right on Dalton to mm-hmm. <laughs> indoctrinate them as part of my uh, Wayne Newton cult. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, it's just like, these are like such a comfort blanket for me. And, and like, I, I lo- like I said, like, I love all the Bonds, um, some more than others, but like, this is my preference. This is kind of just my sweet spot. And the the one other of its time thing that you'll have to explain to your kids is you can't refer to people as Oriental anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can't call it Oregon. I was surprised that that was happening this late in American yeah. cinema, but um, yeah. there it was. <laughs> I say we move on to. I'm kind of interested, basically, because both of you are so much more knowledgeable about the different Bonds, whereas I've seen like maybe a Connery. I've never seen a Brosnan. I don't think I've seen Lazenby. Um, I've obviously seen these two Dalton movies and I've seen Daniel Craig, but like if you were to take on bond, like how would you define those edges? Like what would your bond look like? Um, and do you like the way that it's been adapting over the years? I know we're reviving a canceled undercover police program from the eighties. Oh, it's not a remake. It's a reboot. You see the guys in charge of this stuff lack creativity. What the fuck is a reboot? So all they do now is recycle shit from the past. We're working on less of a shriekle and, and more of a screamake. Expect us all not to notice. I like it. Another! <coughs> Sage, let's start with you just because you've already said that if you were going to reboot this movie, do you, you, you seem to like the way that Craig's taking on the role. Where where do you see it going if you if you did more? Well, if I had a pitch or a reboot for a, for a James Bond movie, I might want to play within the history a lot. Uh, I know I haven't said fully nice things about License to Kill. I would love to see Timothy Dalton never say never again, License to Kill. <laughs> and bring in, like, Pierre Morel or someone who's, like, literally... I could, yeah, no, that's that's the person who did Taken. Um, I want to see Timothy Dalton, too old for the role, but doing a revenge mm-hmm. revenge thriller as a man who has been James Bond for like 50 years in the world or something. Out of retirement because they killed his friends, friends that he's had time to establish by being an agent for 50 years. I feel like maybe that movie could even be better. And if at least the first Taken movie could make Liam Neeson a believable action star, the, the other two have directorial and editing problems where it takes him 15 cuts to throw a punch. <laughs> I would like to see that movie. Uh, but going forward as a franchise, like, post-Craig, like, I I don't have as much that I want to see as much as I just want to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, um, you know, when I first saw Casino Royale in theaters, I was really blown away. It's still my favorite of the Daniel Craig ones at the very least. And if I was being objective, I think that that's really like a perfect Bond movie. Like, I really don't have many complaints with it. 
I think where I have issues in the Craig area era is just how much they've interconnected each movie. I mean, Spectre was kind of the high point of that, mm-hmm. where it's kind of like all these disparate villains are are all under the Christoph Waltz umbrella a little bit. Yeah, so I think dumb. if I was, I would really like to keep it fairly hard edged, keep it fairly grounded, but go back to having each one kind of be its own self-contained adventure. I really miss that. I think, you know, there are a lot of problems with Quantum of Solace. It's one of my least favorite in the franchise. I think that the big, I mean, it was kind of a victim of it the time with the writer's strike and everything, but I think that decision to connect that movie so explicitly to Casino Royale kind of set up Craig for kind of an awkward run of films. I love Skyfall, don't yeah. get me wrong, but I feel like the next Bond is... I think that it would really behoove them to not worry about like what Marvel is doing or what these other franchises mm-hmm. are doing and just like focus on telling like one great story at a time and like kind of letting them be their own standalone stories. So to to clarify, Bond as a franchise should not take influence from whatever's popular at the time. <laughs> is that what you're I saying? Think, I think you can take the trappings, but this idea of... I mean, just like backdooring all these other movies into the same story. Like, I don't know how they're going to wrap up the Craig era. Like, are they going to kill Craig at the end? Like, are they going to kill Bond and just reboot again? Like, that's something that's actually been discussed. And I think that that's such a bad move. Like, I think you've just kind of got to have faith in your audience that, you know, we understand that that this is a role that, that gets recast every five to 10 to 15 years and you know will evolve with the time but i think it's important to just like try and make the best movie you can in in each installment and i was like heartened when skyfall came out because i kind of felt like that's what they were doing they were kind of like well quantum of solace didn't really work like let's just try and tell a good story and then right after that it was like okay let's do quantum of solace again where we yeah. you know so i i'd answer your question i think you know keep kind of the you know, keep some keep some of the spirit of the Dalton and Craig ones, but have them a little more just just isolated. So, and just as an aside, you fall you fall very firmly then on like James Bond is the same person throughout this entire thing. There's no, it's not a code name that other agents have used. Yeah, I mean, Casino Royale explicitly reboots. So we're to, mm-hmm. when we watch the Craig ones, basically, you know. All, everything prior to that is wiped out, which is why yeah. it's so weird when the Goldfinger car shows up in Skyfall. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it, may, it makes me think that Sam Mendes hasn't really watched a lot of these movies. But uh, that's made explicit, I think, in License to Kill, bringing up mm-hmm. the dead wife of the Lazenby Bond. Right. I mean, but it's kind of a floating, like, continuity. Like, otherwise, this yeah. guy would, would be super old. So it's like... Right. I think that it's not that big of a leap to go like, okay, the events of Dr. No happen, but we're just going to kind of scoot them up into this actor's age, you know? Um, Yeah. The reboots and continuity being kind of fluid in its own way. And so like, you know, I'm actually kind of unopposed to seeing a younger bond. That's not necessarily a mm -hmm. preference, but like, I like the idea of again, just interweaving stuff. And the thing that I would kind of like to see an attempt made at, I'm not sure it would be the right decision and they probably won't do it, but is bring back those gadgets in a heavier way because the Daniel Craig bond to me is felt less gadget heavy. His tools are his hands and how good he is with a gun. Um, and I'd love to see like, fuck it, give Q's assistance, 
have him go rogue and like let's see fucking wild gadgets on both sides of the 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 arm fight and just like inspector gadget up this shit um <laughs> is where i'd like to see you know again that feels more like an unofficial bond i don't think it would really work but i like the idea of like bringing now that we've had this hyper real like casino royale is amazing that was the first bond that really got me being like oh shit i'm kind of excited about this franchise yeah like this is fun and then i unfortunately did see uh, Quantum of Solace, I just like lives as like a blank slate in my head where I just like it's watch pretty this forgettable. Movie. It's yeah. not a bad yeah. movie, but it's just sandwiched between Casino Royale and Skyfall, which right. are amazing for different reasons. Like, yeah, Skyfall is one of the prettiest movies I've ever seen. Nothing oh, in Bond gorgeous. comes close yeah. to looking as, De- De- as Deacon's, good as Skyfall. You know, he's, he's a pretty solid yeah. DP. <laughs> Sam Mendes also has a good eye. Like he's created a lot of really beautiful films together. Yeah, um, but I don't. I don't like how Spectre looks, and that's far from the biggest problem <laughs> with the movie. And uh, yeah. what you were saying, Sean, about interconnectedness, like at least with the Greg movies, it really only hurts Spectre. It's not like the MCU where there's parts of each movie that just serve to to create further movies like yeah the existence of specter doesn't make the first three any worse in my opinion i don't know fair but specter's garbage but yeah i'd, I'd just like to see you know an amount of levity attempted in a more serious like I, I like the the the, the way that the, the dalton bond felt where it like brought not necessarily a grit but like just playing the what bond can be straight was really fun for me to see. And I'd be interested to see what that looked like with modern technology. And that's all. Yeah. Sean, do you have like a dream bond project you want to direct? Oh (laughs) man. You know, um, there's so much Fleming material that hasn't been mined yet. Like regardless. Yes. And like, there's so a, you want your shitty, they, shitty bang bang bond. What's that? Oh, you no, well, I mean, there's still some bang. short stories that haven't been done. Um, and uh, there's one that is uh, that's called it's a terrible short story, but it's called 007 in New York. And uh, <laughs> it's like I think he like literally just like eats somewhere at the end. But I feel like it would be kind of ballsy to call a Bond movie that and just kind of try another shot at sort of an America like a Bond in America sort of fish out of water thing. Mm-hmm. Or just a my dinner with Bondre. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it would also be cool to take the character back to the 60s, like almost like Mad Men this shit up a little bit and take it back to the Cold War. I think that there's like a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, I'm super down for a period Bond piece. I could see like, um, you know, again, like it's get sort of an get sort of an unknown actor to play him. But like, let it just be the 60s again, like let Bond smoke and kind of be a little more debaucherous like i feel like the pendulum you is want all the misogyny from... and racism and everything <laughs> maybe leave some of that out okay but uh i think that you know we're always swinging from light to dark uh and i think if we were, were to do a lighter one it would be fun to do it as more of a period piece that's my bad bond idea but frankly i don't envy the people who have to come after craig like i have no mm-hmm. idea what they're gonna do yeah have you all seen man from uncle yes no, right. the reboot or the that's re- yeah the reboot. That's gonna be my recommendation because that is kind of like a period piece Bond. That's like it does feel like if Guy Ritchie did a Bond movie, that's what is it would that... feel like, and it's also the best thing Guy Ritchie's done in quite a while. Is that Henry Kate Cavill? Yeah, yeah. Henry Cavill's playing an American, and Army Hammer, an American, is playing a Russian, and it's pretty delightful. That sounds good. I, I'll have to watch that. Yeah, it 
also has some skydiving sequences, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So I'm going to recommend any any spy movie that has Henry Cavill in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I guess we're in recommendations now. You've just recommended Man from Uncle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sean, is there, is there any movies that you'd like to recommend based um, on... You know, the, I mentioned it earlier, but if you have uh, Hulu, I think check out Becoming Bond. It's mm-hmm. It's really funny. I mean, even if you don't have an interest in these movies necessarily... I think they did a good job of encapsulating kind of the weirdest segment of the history of this franchise, which is George Lazenby. And he's just like a really funny, loquacious, weird Australian guy. And, uh, and like, so there's some great, uh, bits in that. Uh, so you should definitely check it out. And I'm going to recommend Dalton's turn as a uh, shopkeep in, or gross, grocer, grocer. I'll, I'll go with gro- grocer from hot fuzz uh (laughs) edgar wright's small town cop uh comedy it's delightful he's a slasher of prices Mm -hmm. yeah that i was trying to remember that murder (laughs) quote it's like you've got to arrest me i'm a murderer i'm a slasher of prices as he's just jogging by i know that's not that shot of him smiling next to a picture of himself with the same expression is delightful Hot Fuzz made me think I would like Timothy Dalton as Bond more than I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I also sort of feel like he's never gotten the the perfect role for him. I'd love to direct him in something someday because I feel like had things played out differently, he really would have had a totally different career, like a Gary Oldman mm-hmm. career. Like, I feel like he just Ooh. never really got that role for him to sink his teeth into. Well, I'd say that's uh, about time for Sean to plug some stuff. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there's not much, uh, on the site right now, but, uh, let me make sure that I, uh, yeah, redsnowmovie.com, uh, right now that just links to our successful Seed and Spark campaign, but eventually Mm -hmm. that will start to be populated with festival dates and that sort of thing, uh, so keep an eye on that. Um, I have my own podcast that I do with my wife, Lindsay, called Tapeheads. Are you still putting out episodes? Oh on? yeah, yeah. We're on. We're on just sort of a. Uh, we ca- we we were doing it bi-monthly, and they've kind of slowed down as we've both gotten very busy. So it's kind of just we put out an episode whenever we feel like it. You've gotten busy now. Oh yeah, I mean we're both oh. work from home, uh, and it's never been busier. Weirdly, oh. uh, yeah. So uh, and, and out of those, we've done two Bond movies: uh, License to Kill. This is my second podcast about that movie. (laughs) And uh, Gavin's been on the show for Evil Dead 2. And Mm -hmm. we also did The Spy Who Loved Me, a Roger Moore one that I think is worth uh, checking out if you're into Roger Moore. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on, Sean. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Um, It was really exciting to hear Ulrich on uh, mutual friend Ulrich Purcell be on here Mm -hmm. for a couple episodes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really doing the other the spy series. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll have him back for for more of those. Sage, I feel like you your choice of Mission Impossible three as your favorite Mission Impossible is kind of like me saying these are my favorite Bond movies. <laughs> so I don't know. I I feel strongly about it, and I'm excited. I'm not I'm not gonna commit to any of the things I'm saying, but like there is a Mission Impossible three versus Mission Impossible four episode planned where i can fully convince everyone that i'm right <laughs> i'm and that's what's firmly on the ghost protocol side of that but i do love philip seymour hoffman as the villain. yes if this podcast survives long enough we'll probably do an episode on each bond 
but we're obviously not doing those in a row, which would have been the smart way to do it. <laughs> we're starting with the fourth bond, and then months later we'll talk about a different bond. Well, tell me when you get to some other bonds. Like, uh, All right. my expertise does not begin and end with uh, Mr. Dalton. I, I have thoughts. <laughs> You can send us a message at stillgoodpod, DM us on Instagram. We have a site now. It's currently just a collection of episodes, but by the time this comes out, maybe it'll be more. Maybe it won't. Um, So you can check out our our past episodes at stillgoodpod.com. Gavin, you got anything to plug? Yeah, uh, go check out. I just directed the music video for Spooky Mansion for their song The Curse, and it was a lot of fun. It's kind of a rock and roll mystery, kind of an unsolved mystery type deal. Uh, got to go hang out in the woods with some people, make some spooky stuff. And uh, yeah, you can find me at Gavin V. Murray on most things. Please do. Okay. Everyone look for Gavin. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye. Slasher, and I must be stopped. You're a what? A slasher of prices. <laughs> Just kidding. My discounts are criminal. Catch me later.